Hello and welcome to Integrated Rhythm, two swing dancing besties, that's Jasomo Salamani and myself, Bobby White, discussing race and the black experience in jazz dance. This is one of the first episodes we ever recorded that we have not put out yet. Uh, it just so happened to, you know, we just hadn't gotten around to putting it out yet, but that was more than 32 episodes ago, which is pretty exciting. So this is, this is from last year, so it's, in, in that sense, it's not that exciting, but it covers a lot of ground. We start off with Jasomo talking about Black American English, and then it kind of goes from there to all over the place, including the South and the Caribbean and New York and Africa and all sorts of places. So it's a pretty, pretty expanding conversation, and we hope you like it. We are here with Chisomo Salamani, my my rock, my my cohort, my my other half of the podcast. Yes, Bobby, and we're here with Bobby White, who is my rock, my other half of the podcast. Imagine that he sets the structure that we find ourselves in. Super grateful to Bobby for all that he does in making this happen. Um, those of you listening will hear a lot of appreciation because why not? Just we should what? find, right? Should find moments to be grateful. Uh, so, uh, did you do anything interesting yesterday? I did. I did. So, um, most of you know that I'm a speech pathologist and I, um, I moderated a really interesting discussion yesterday. My work um, in speech pathology, my volunteering, I should actually say, has me do a lot of professional development things um, specific to global issues. I'm the chair of a special interest group called Global Issues in Communication Sciences and Disorders. Often what I say on this podcast does not reflect American Speech Language and Hearing Association's views, but <laughs> in um, in preparation for this talk today, um, I was reflecting on this concept, which is language is power. Think about that for a second, right? Isn't that kind of cool? Like, we know knowledge is power, but um, language, inherent to language is so much power, what is considered to be a language, whose language is valuable and valid. Um, and so yesterday, I got to be in the presence of these two incredible people, Dr. Wolfram, Wolfram from NC State and Dr. Taylor. Um, and both of these individuals have been researching the African-American language for 50 years. So um, they have put together documentaries. I would look up um, Talking Black in America online. A lot of Dr. Wolfram's work is posted on there. His documentaries are, are on PBS. And he does everything that he can to um, talk about African-American vernacular English, African-American English, and remind people that it is a legitimate language. You might be like, wait, no, that's a dialect. But it is 
a language. Yeah. So Bobby and I were talking about this and he was like, oh man, this is really cool. What were some of your thoughts, Bobby, as we like, what comes to your mind when you think about African-American language? Well, first off, uh, let's see. So I'm, I'm a Southern boy born in Atlanta. And uh, one of the things I've noticed a lot is that, um, you know, uh, so I now live in New York City, Brooklyn specifically. I've lived in Washington, D.C. Uh, I've lived in Baltimore, Maryland. And one of the things I've realized is that the places where I hear what I think of as like my homegrown accent, my southern, my southern accent, a lot of places where I hear that are in the black culture around me. Very little of it is in the white culture around me in the north. However, like there's so many similarities in the in the speech patterns of the of black Americans around me that remind me of of what I heard growing up in the South. So that was that's one thing that's been that's always kind of struck me as interesting. Um, yeah, and the the other thing that made me think of is that when I was in elementary school or high school was the first time I ever heard the word abonics in relationship to them having Ebonics classes that were, they were starting to offer in my high school. And uh, I never got a chance to take them or at the time was not interested in taking them or for, for whatever reason, like I heard about them, but I, I, I was not, I did not take those classes. Uh, but that was the first time in my life that, that someone said, hey, did you know that this is a language worthy of study and understanding and it's really, really cool? And that was the first time in my life that I, I came across that um, concept. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> there was a lot of discussion, particularly in the 90s, about Ebonics and um, whether it was legitimate or not. And we found that um, there are segments of people in different communities and black communities and white communities and other communities that um, have determined that it's not a language and there are um, people who have determined that it's not legitimate. But what I appreciate about the ongoing research of these individuals, Dr. Wolfram and Dr. Taylor specifically, and there are many others, is that they're talking back to that voice and reminding us that it is in fact legitimate. And um, somebody in this conversation asked the question, um, what determines a dialect or a language? And um, in teaching language development, I have a response to that. I have um, the the response, the textbook response, is that a dialect is determined as a variation um, of a language characterized by differences in vocabulary, pronunciation, and grammar. And grammar has to do with um, morphology and syntax. So if you want to take some time and study those terms, do that. I'm happy to have side conversations about it, but not going into my language development course um, for the purpose of this conversation. Um, dialect is considered to be to be variations of those three things. But what I loved about the interaction between Dr. Wolfram and Dr. Taylor is that they took it, they didn't go down that road. They didn't get into what the textbooks would say. They just simply said, power. Power is what determines language. 
And so when we think about like um, accent, accents and dialects and languages within the United States or even across the continent of Africa, those are probably the places you'll hear me talk about the most. Um, it is truly power dynamics that determine what is valid and what's not. And so uh, I appreciated that statement because it makes people step back and, and reflect on their own understanding of power structures and their own understanding of validity as it pertains to language. And um, why is it that it's okay to talk in one way and not okay to talk in another? Like, why is it that when I was growing up, people would say, oh, you speak so eloquently. Your English is so good. One, why is that surprising? And two, why is it that I have to sound like a certain type of English for it to be considered to be eloquent? when there are perfectly legitimate other ways of speaking. I was just talking to a student today actually about this, um, an undergraduate student. She was telling me that she had teachers and therapists as she was growing up trying to put her in speech therapy because she spoke African-American English. And this is a student that is incredibly capable, incredibly intelligent. And I imagine as she was in school that what was being recognized was a difference and not a, at all a disorder. But because of the way that we've decided, because of what we've decided is normal, um, what we've decided is center, all those things that are other are illegitimate. And um, also to Bobby's point about his experiences growing up, um, Dr. Wolfram made the statement yesterday that there is no other language or dialect that has contributed to what we understand as English in the United States more than the African-American language. We, we're getting so many words, concepts, ideas from that community, which then parallels like what we're talking about. If you might be like, but I thought this was a podcast about dancing. Um, <laughs> so... Bobby's like, uh, if I you mean, thought dancing. that, then you didn't actually listen to us. <laughs> well, that and like dancing is language and language is dancing. Yes. Yes. And so something you said, Bobby, um, in an earlier episode was that um, we benefit so greatly from the Black American community. And our movement and our movement values and the things that we appreciate, the same can be said about our spoken language. We benefit so greatly from a Black American community in our language and what we understand to be the way that we communicate with one another. So it's interesting that we decide to continue to other this culture, this rich history, and. Um, yeah, so there's so many things, so many things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's see, um, a few things that flashed across my my mind um, so far. Uh, first off, I've experienced a tiny bit of that discrimination of language discrimination in my own right. So, for instance, if you knew me five years ago, you would probably have never heard the word "y'all" from me, even though I grew up in a family that used the word "y'all," and I grew up you know, with grandparents that yelled the shit out of, out of everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I was, I was 
raised at a time and in a place and given the implicit understanding that if you say y'all, people aren't going to take you as a human, as an intellectual person. People aren't going to see you as an eloquent person. Um, and so I, I, I just found ways around it. And I didn't even do that consciously. I did that subconsciously. Like I didn't say, I'm going to stop using the word y'all. I just started saying you guys or you people or, or that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, which, you know, or, or other, other better sounding things than you people, which is. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you people? <laughs> so, um, and then like a few years ago, especially because uh, a few years ago, some of my New York friends I noticed were saying y'all. And I was like, wait, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. You've never lived in the South and you're saying y'all and I'm not saying y'all. There is a there's a situation here that I need to to think about more. And of course, you know that um, y'all is such a fantastic word because it's a genderless um, plural. Uh, It's it's uh, so useful. And I remember very distinctly, I remember being in. in my university in in Tennessee, where I went to school, a tiny school called Swanee on a mountain in the middle of nowhere, um, I remember our our entire uh, my favorite English professor, who a literature professor, he had the most gorgeous Southern accent, and he was like one of the you know one of the most smartest people I knew at the time, and I remember him. He was he was we were in Chaucer class, and he t- and he he. He reads uh, something in in Middle English, uh, some, some something of Chaucer's in Middle English, and he stops, and he takes off his glasses, which is what he always did to make a point. So he would take off his glasses, and he said, "Now listen here to what Chaucer said. There's not nothing in the no one, or something like that. So like I'm I'm making it up, but basically it was like a double or triple negative in a mm-hmm. sentence, and he was like." Do not let anyone ever tell you that a double negative is not, a, you know, is not proper. Like, mm-hmm. he basically, like, he was, uh, 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 that was my first introduction into, and when I think back, back on it, that was my first introduction into living language and uh, documented rules as opposed to prescriptive rules in language. And so a prescriptive rule is where we make up a rule and expect mm-hmm. people pedantly to 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 follow that rule or else they will be out you know or else we'll bring it up or, or you know they'll be embarrassed and shamed about their lack of education in that way whereas uh what did i call it descriptive or documented versus doc, doc, yeah yeah documented rule is taking what is already existing in living language and saying well that's a thing so therefore we'll mention that that's a thing so like double negatives saying y'all all this kind of like those are things that we use to communicate, and so therefore they're valid and they count. Um, just like one of my other favorite phrases, which is like, "Every word is made up." When 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 I when I say a word and people are like, "You made it," you made it up. You know, every word is made up. If you yeah. get the basic idea of what I'm saying, then I have I have succeeded in communication. And yeah. um, so that was that kind of threw across my head uh, while you're. Well, uh, another thing. Oh, right, right. So anyway, so that y'all going back to my that little tiny bit, like that's a tiny bit of discrimination in language. I can only imagine what it's like to be a black American who has to code switch in order for people to just like take them to pay attention to what they're saying uh, 
a lot of times. And that is just like mind boggling uh, to me and very sad. Yeah. Um, There's been a lot of work in, um, in and amongst the members of my association to, to, to talk back to this, to, to respond to society's prejudices. Because um, when, if we have decided collectively that something is illegitimate, then um, that becomes the plumb line for what, for function, right? And so then those of us who are practi- practicing or practitioners um, supporting somebody's increased functioning in their community, we're using that plumb line to determine whether or not um, people should receive services. And, and that we've discussed, we have discussed at length is, an, is unethical. Like that, the, um, and it's important for us to continuously examine our learned discrimination, um, our learned prejudices. And, and so when you live in the gray spaces of communication, which is what a lot of um, languages, then it's important to to be astute in this way and to to think to be to think critically about how it is that we've determined what is legitimate and what is not. And so, um, so yeah, it was it was just heart wrenching to hear that my student in the last 15 years had this experience. There was nothing wrong with her. She's an incredibly capable individual, highly functioning in all of her environments, but yet people still wanted to put her in therapy. You know, and, and that, and she's not, she's not alone. There are, I, I was just talking to a group of um, prospective students earlier this semester um, in, in a high school in Cleveland. And one of the conversations leading up to this presentation and I believe was wrapped into this presentation was um, if you are a black individual considering um, speech pathology as a future career, do you have to code switch in order to persist through your education? Do you have to code switch as you're providing therapy? Um, are, is your use of AAE or African-American English, is that going to preclude you from persistence in the field? And then what's really hard is when you see someone like me who sounds like me, I mean, I've been listening to myself a lot because of this podcast and I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> like, if I didn't say frequently that I um, am African, <laughs> I am black. If I didn't say that frequently, It'd be really tempting to think that I am not. I mean, in fact, I have had moments where I've called people, I've made reservations or something, and I've shown up and people are like, where's the white lady? You know? (laughs) 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 Had that happen in Zambia. Somebody was like, I was talking to this white lady on the phone, and I was like, that was me. So, and so when you see someone like me, I, I sometimes lament the fact that I have so absorbed the way that I speak Um, because uh, while I think students can see themselves in me, like the way that I sound or the way that I speak may also be 
um, someone might think, oh, do I have to be like that? And and you don't. Right, right. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, because you have the 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 problem of being an automatic role model as a, as a professor. Yeah. And, yeah. And yeah. Oh man. Yeah. That's a whole new, cause you're, you're being true to yourself and yet you, you realizing that you being true to yourself might give the wrong impression to, as a role model to, to some of your black American students. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. And so I, um, it, it is, it's been a point of reflection where I've thought, okay, how, like this is, it's important to remember that blackness is not monolithic and so black expression is not monolithic either. So the way that I present, the way that I sound, all of these things are legitimate. Um, if I sounded different, if I sounded more um, the way that I do when I'm in Zambia for a while, um, if I sounded like that, that is legitimate as well. If I um, speak with African-American English, that is legitimate. These are all legitimate. Um, it is, I think it is just hard when you see someone who um, has been elevated to the top of the ivory tower and so, and, and looks assimilationist, you know, it's like, do I need to assimilate in that way? Do I need to get rid of a certain aspects of myself? And, um, when I was talking to the student earlier, um, we were we were talking about how it is really important to have conversations about this and about identity through the educational process because as just the process of going through K through K twelve education, the process of going through higher ed, there are things that you're learning and grabbing onto. So this I think ties into that idea of documented um like a, a documentation versus perception, like there are things that you're learning in researching what's out there and you're acquiring skills, but oftentimes when you're acquiring something, you're also losing something. And so um, sometimes people, and the way that we speak is often influenced by our educational process. We do presentations, right? And so um, and then we're judged on how we communicate ideas. And so a student might learn, like if I use certain language, certain vocabulary, then this is going to be um, given a certain grade. If I use this other vocabulary, then that's going to equal this other grade. And so then now we have this dynamic where we're valuing language in a way that um, is associated with our future progression and that happens in the classroom and that happens in business that happens yeah. all over the place and so and, um it's it's all of these issues are so pervasive and um i i keep coming back to the question um why is it important to talk about these things why is it important for us to um reflect on elements of blackness and whiteness and identity and um, othering, marginalization, minoritizing. And, and it's because of this. It's in, We have all these small ways where we've determined people's net value that we don't even realize, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, it, uh, you know, you were talking, it, it reminded, it, or it, it dawned on me that, um, very clearly this concept that uh, when you are in a space dominated by a different culture or uh, um, 
when you're in a space dominated by a different culture, you know, let's say that you're one of two or three black American kids in, in a college room with, you know, 17 or 18 white kids or something to that effect. Um, then you are, uh, you know, it, it's natural for humans to learn culture subconsciously and, and to learn the rules of, of the culture subconscious. That, that, that is natural that that's going to happen that, you know, to what extent are, to what extent, especially in such a, a large majority situation, is it natural to start like code switching subconsciously without even realizing it? Right. And just like showing them that you understand the rules of this culture and that you're, you know, as, as a way of like joining and being a part and getting something, you know, out of that culture, uh, you know, which is what you're in class for. Uh, so to, to uh, by which I mean, you're in class to like get something out of the experience, right. To learn from the experience. Um, and, and if you subconsciously are like playing the game or code switching for that culture, that's part of how you like are going to economize getting that, that learning out of the, the thing. Um, but that also means that like you have to, I think then you have to like fight to keep your culture, right? Or like you, you, you probably have to learn to fight to hold on to certain things because otherwise, because it's all subconsciously changing and code switching, you won't necessarily hold on to those things if you don't fight and if you don't keep them tight. And so now you, now you're, no matter which way you look at it, you're, you're going to change or, or that you're, you're, you and your connection to your culture is going to change because either you're going to find yourself, uh, you know, code switching towards this other culture, or you're going to find yourself force more forcefully holding on to your culture Neither of which is like what would happen if you're just kind of left to, you know, just left in your, you know, yeah, un, un, you know, left outside of that environment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what you said made me think of the idea that happens when people study abroad um, or travel that go, they go to a different country for the first time. There's that um, adage or saying that's like once you cross the ocean, you can never go home. Like, Oh, that's a great, you know? Idea. Yeah. So it's like, once you go into a different environment, your vantage point, your way of thinking just completely changes because you are starting to see things from someone else's perspective. And so, um, I feel like what you're describing that happens in class and through the educational process is, is this idea that the more proximal you get to different ways of thinking, um, the further away you get from maybe what's what was what you grew up with or your home. And so there's this constant navigation of um, yourself, your perspective, your identity in relation to what you're learning. And so and people see this all the time when they go to college, like um, ask any first generation student about going to college there, there's some things that students who've had family members that have gone to college, parents have gone to college that they know like about college before they get there. And then first generation students are like, what? Like, <laughs> like wait, <laughs> like this is all assumed. Like this doesn't make any sense. And so, um, yeah, there's this really interesting experience that happens as you're learning. Um, but then to your point about, even just thinking about like when we learn to code switch, um, 
when you look at identity development, when you look at language development, um, children, like babies, <laughs> the kids as early, like basically from the time that they start talking. So children as early as like two and three years old, like I believe if we were to look at like three-year-olds, there are three-year-olds that very easily, I mean, and even when I think about my three-year-olds, there's so, there's so much that's developed in their language by that point. Um, they're able to easily code switch between different, um, different environments. So, um, a three-year-old might know, like if we're talking about bilingual Spanish and English speakers, like they might speak to abuela in Spanish and then speak to their auntie in English and their mom or dad in either language. Like they're, by the time that a child is three, they're able to determine all of that. Like they, like you said, we learn the rules of language and culture. So, or like it's, they're just incorporated into our existence. That's why there are so many people um, who don't understand speech development. Like it's a mystery to us. Like you have a baby and they start talking, right? That's, that's just the way that that happens. And so when you have a baby and that baby's not talking, there's a question of like, what do we do? Because it's just like, we are social creatures. We're hardwired for communication. So we don't really think about stimulating language unless it's not as present as we expect it to be. Um, but there are so many things that we just naturally do to teach language in the way that we function as a society. There are things that we do to teach the rules of engagement, um, but we do it without realizing it. And so my, my main issue in all of this discussion is, is that question of not realizing what it is that we're perpetuating, you know? Yeah. And that's like, I think one of our biggest overall themes, whenever we talk about uh, race and, and racial justice and social justice. And so much of it is people's subconscious action. Like, you know, we're, we're at the point I think now where a lot of people, you know, a lot of correcting the problem is probably people realizing how their subconscious actions are programmed in to, to, to be racist without them even realizing it. Right. Just like the whole language situation. Yeah. Well, and it's, and, language is such an inherent part of who we are, how we function. And so, yeah, so of course that is also riddled with all kinds of discrimination and prejudice. And um, yeah, I mean, I even think about like um, just the words black and white and the identity, like in the images that come to our minds, like um, we can learn a lot by watching media and colors and what colors communicate right so if you have really dark things and black things are associated with evil light thing light things and white things are associated with good and so it's always great when you see like a movie or a tv show kind of flip that on its head um to provide us with like different associations um but but a lot of what we do, like you said, is it's the subconscious bubbling up. And, um, and if we take moments to reflect, we can live in a space where uh, we can deconstruct our realities and, and start to talk back and interrogate our subconscious 
thoughts and, um, and experiences. Yeah. You heard enough and now it's time for the break. Hey everybody, this is Bobby White from Integrated Rhythm. We're here to ask you to please consider donating to the podcast. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash integrated rhythm. You can do so by Venmoing at Bobby Swungover. And make sure to put a little IR in the note so we make sure it goes to the right people. You can also do so by PayPaling at Bobby White 3. And once again, putting a little IR in the in the window there. Doing so will help us keep this podcast going, and we love doing it, and we hope you love it too. If you can't afford to donate at this time because times are rough, we totally understand. We don't want you to put yourselves out. We want you to keep enjoying the podcast for free. However, if you have a little bit of pocket change in your pocket, we would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks, and have a great day. We're back. So... Uh, this something that this has brought up uh, is it's made me think about how now that I live in New York and lived in New York for about five years, I've all of a sudden started to relate to certain aspects of my southernness a lot more than I ever have in my life. And and some of those are just because I'm surrounded by things that are not those things. So like I'm in New York, there's a hustle and bustle. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people who for some reason, don't have a sense of humor, which is puzzling to me. And there's, uh, there's people or there, there's lots of great dishes. There's lots of great culinary dishes. I mean, I'm in New York. There's lots of incredible food, but like, as soon as I got up here, I had a hankering for barbecue and fried chicken, which are my two favorite food groups. And so luckily, luckily New York is currently at a stage where it's reached the hipster barbecue level of, Mm. of establishments where like, some people who are really passionate about barbecue and doing it right have restaurants that charge an exorbitant amount of money for their barbecue, but I will take it. And then, of course, there's the soul food history of New York, which mm-hmm. is rooted in the Great Migration. Yeah. So for those of you listening who don't know about the Great Migration, basically in the night, starting around the 1910s and 1920s, the Jim Crow Southern laws and the discrimination and the racism had gotten so bad. And this is like... 50 years after the civil war, that's how bad, like it was already really bad, you know, in the civil war reconstruction turned things around for a sweet, hot little minute. Um, and then things started getting bad again. And just to let you know how bad it must've gotten for all of a sudden, uh, so many black Americans to be like, you know what, we're just going to move North where there's, uh, this, some industrial jobs that we can take. We can take our whole family up there and like, and just get the F away from all this bullshit, <laughs> which is, uh, so one of the heartbreaking things, like the most heartbreaking things that happened in the first place, that's really heartbreaking. Um, a specifically heartbreaking aspect of it is how so many of those Southerners didn't want to leave. Those black American Southerners thought of the South as their home. That's where generations of their family had been. That's where they knew how they knew how to what the soil was supposed to do. They knew like, you know, they knew the weather. They knew every, you know, like that was their home. And so for things to get so freaking racist that they just so many of them were just like, you know what, we'll find a new home um, is incredibly heartbreaking. 
and so so many of uh, those black Americans go to northern cities, and when they're there, they get homesick, and they get homesick for their down home cooking is what they called it down home cooking, and so um, the really good uh, the really good cooks in those neighborhoods would open up restaurants that would serve that down home cooking. And then um, it later adopted the name soul food. And uh, so in a way, when we think of soul food, the concept is not just like Southern, especially black American cooking. The concept is also homesick Northern, Northern black American people. And so to me that, that this whole conversation, like, you know, when you're in a different space and you have to hold on to something in order to keep it alive, it can't just live organically alone or else it'll go away. Um, to think about how much of the black American experience has got to be just like holding on to what they can so that it doesn't slip away. Yeah. I, I have to say that this, that idea resonates a lot with myself being a member of the diaspora and um and and so I feel like we see this in African diasporic communities so whether that's Af the African American community in the United States the um black communities in the Caribbean um and then even across the continent of Africa with the importation of importation right importing maybe the importing of um, colonial views and mindsets. So even though we live in a post-colonial world now, um, many of our, like, I know my parents' generation really absorbed kind of the value, the Eurocentric value systems. And, um, and these, these were kind of embedded into education, healthcare, and so on in order to connect to the rest of the world. So globalization has also done this thing where we're speaking with common language, but there's also the letting go of historical and traditional things because we, we're, we're in an effort to connect. And so, so yeah, so absolutely. I, um, this is, question of preservation is so important um and along with language food oh yeah like uh, as as you were talking it made me think about the Gullah people in South Carolina and um one of the points that was made in this documentary that Dr. Wolfram um has put together was that um South Carolina kind of echoes the um e echoes it it not mimics but it, it is very much like west africa and so the environment it's humid there's the um the water is is right there like there's all these different things that's similar to like to ghana um and so this individual was was talking about how um uh, how how like um that their environment um, would connects to this rich African history, this ancestral past, and so um, so when you talk about moving up north, Bobby, that it makes sense that with 
moving up north, there's a loss of a lot of things that are similar to home, right? In, including environmental factors, including food, community, and so on. And so, yes, like there is the racist and horrible history associated with slavery. But then when we think about what the South has to offer in terms of climate and um, environmental factors that like mirrors and reflects some of what we experience on the continent of Africa. And I know I, for one, living in Ohio, suffer every year through the winter in the <laughs> Like, why? Why, why, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> also, like for like five, for six seven, solid years, I could say, you know what? I moved back to Ohio for my mother. I'm here for my mom. I'm here because of family. I'm a family-oriented person. And look at me being amazing, being family-oriented. <laughs> my mom left me. She left me. And now I'm still here in Ohio. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why am I doing this to myself? It's cold. <laughs> well, but you also have a family. You have a, a new family there and you have a great job there. Oh, I do have a great job here. Great job. That's you shivering in the in the Ohio cold. Same great job. Think about it. And I think, I'm like, where would I go? I've thought very seriously about Australia. But a, but a lot of people tell me that things there are a lot of things that would kill me there. And I'm like, well, there are a lot of things that would kill me anywhere. So. Yeah, there are fam famously a lot of deadly things. But most of those are out in the bush. If you went to Australia, you would probably be like 90% like of the population hanging out by the coast. Right. So. The go by the way, full circle well not necessarily even full circle but just like bringing this back around to dancing uh for those of you who don't know it is the gullah culture that Chisoma was speaking about which gave us the charleston which then gave us partner charleston which then gave us a lindy hop and probably also possibly to some extent balboa swing anyway thanks gullah you guys are awesome yes amazing yeah um, but it yeah, the Gullah culture. Check out the Gullah culture. Uh, read up on them. It is such a treasure of American culture. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and look look up Gullah Geechee, the language. So there's some really cool connections between St. Helena Island, Island, yeah, um, St. Helena and um, like Caribbean communities. Also, so, oh, right, sorry. Oh no, the um the the thing that I really appreciated is um in in listening to Dr. Wolfram and thinking about his work in in talking black in America is when we think about the line like the lineage of black Americans um they were talking about we are tempted to look back straight to Africa and because I was born in Africa, I'm always like, yeah, let's go back to Africa. Like, I'm all about going back to Africa. But um, what I loved, what kind of put me in check and was the reminder to go to the Caribbean first. Like, this, we have to trace back to the Caribbean and see right, right. those ties. And so... Oh, oh, this yeah. reminds, oh, this reminds me. Uh, so, uh, first yeah. off, uh, another fun fact. Uh, we Did you know that we have a Supreme Court judge who speaks Gullah 
How? Look at that. That's cool. Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas yeah. uh, speaks Gullah. He's from Gullah Geechee culture. Um, also, I forgot to mention, aside from the Charleston, which is already the biggest, uh, you know, not the biggest, it is arguably one of the biggest contributions to jazz dance in, in history. Um, they also, Gullah and Geechee culture are also where a lot of ring shout came from. Yes. Ring shout came from. And the ring shout goes down. Uh, ring shout is, is, is loved and adored and done by that community throughout the ages, even into the 1930s when a group of black Carolinan club dancers at the Big Apple Club in Columbia, South Carolina, start doing jazz dancing in ring shout style. And they call it the Big Apple because it's the Big Apple Club and the white teenagers who are hanging out in the gallery above come and watch it. And then they go out and teach it to their colleges and do it at proms and do it at the beach. And then it like explodes all over the world. And so the Big Apple is also a direct lineage of Gullah Geechee culture. Hot damn. They're just like killing it in the world of jazz dance. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We're, there's so many, this is the thing is there's so much that we appreciate um, on a daily basis that comes that stemmed out of the black American experience, community, history. We should be so grateful um, and, and demonstrate that gratitude um, oh, Chisomo. Oh my gosh. And now, now, now you reminded me when you, when you spoke about the Caribbean and you know, how like we need to like go to yeah. Caribbea. Also, there's this incredible book out there called the world that built new Orleans, the world mm-hmm. that built new Orleans. I almost positive that's the title of the book. Um, and it talks about how we, we in American history tend to think of new Orleans as kind of just like the city in America. And so when we talk about its history, we talk about like, Oh, the, you know, the French came and settled that part of America and then the Spanish took it over and then America took it over. And so voila gumbo. Um, but actually <laughs> this, uh, this author does such an incredible job of talking about like, no, no, no. New Orleans was a port city that just had so much influence from all over the place, especially Cuba. And the author talks so much about Afro-Cuban influence on New Orleans and jazz and how much the Spanish uh, musical influence of Afro-Cuban affected jazz music. Um, So, for instance, if you a a very quick taste of that is uh, the Spanish tinge. If you go on YouTube and look up Jelly Roll Morton, the Spanish tinge, there's video of Jelly Roll describing how. In his opinion, real jazz has to have the Spanish tinge, and that's the influence from Afro African Cuban uh, musical influence. It's not actually Spanish influence; it's the African influence on Spanish culture in Cuba that made it up to New Orleans. Oh my God! The other mind blowing fact from this uh, from this book there are many mind. The whole book is full of mind blowing facts. But another one that reminded me of in this whole conversation is how. Um, uh, in a lot of African cultures, a word, one word has many different uses based on the context in which it is said. And so, for instance, our word tango is actually an African word. And tango would mean if you said, I'm going to the tango tonight, you knew it meant you're going to the place where you're going to dance. If you said, 
that drummer is going to play tango, then you knew that that drummer was going to play a tango rhythm or, or, you know, like the, the drum, like if the drum is called a tango, I don't think there's a drum called a tango. I'm just using it as an example. You know, the drum is called the tango that plays the tango rhythm and the dance is called the tango, which is done to the tango music. And you go to the tango dance. So basically like that one word means all these different things based on the context of what you say, which is just such an awesome linguistic concept to me. Like that's such a great use of language, like such a great shortcut use of language to like mean so many different things. And to also, uh, also that means that when you, if you talk about, you know, when a word can have that many uses, that word starts to describe a greater, a greater uh, hold than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Like, uh, it, you know, like if, in that sense, tango is not just a barroom dance. Tango is a culture because the word tango can be used to understand all these different aspects of that culture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. Um, and we see that, we see that idea in, in English a little bit. Um, not, not to the, to the extent that you're talking about, but like thinking about um, <clears throat> words um, there, we have, vertical and horizontal expansion of words. So that's like um, synonyms and then synonyms of words, but then also using one word in a variety of different ways. And so like the word crack, right? Crack can mean so many different things. So it's like that concept, but blown up a little bit more. Like you said, if we use the word tango, there's this, it embodies a whole host of different elements. That's it. And yeah, and I'll I'll go and let's go ahead and we can just really easily apply this to our dancing lives. Yes. Uh, Are the Lindy Hop that you see in, let's say, you know, the the modern scenes Lindy Hop, what just for a thought experiment, what happens if you imagine that that Lindy Hop is standard American, is the equivalent of standard American English, Mm -hmm. right? And so now what happens if a person from a different culture, even the culture that invented the, the dance, comes along and, and is, is interpreting it in ways with an accent that you're not necessarily familiar with or using some grammar usage that you're not necessarily familiar with, you know, don't necessarily stop saying, oh, well, that's not English, right? Like, there's... there's other ways of talking right well and that i mean like you said the language the people from which it came you know like there's there's something so deep to think about that why is it that people who created a thing are unwelcome to the thing that they created Deep thoughts, deep and uncomfortable thoughts. 